0: I don't know about uh, yourself, but um, I, uh, I find this time of year I get a little irritated with the, uh, the various uh, potted interpretations of Christmas that uh, beset us. Uh, there's been a heap on my Facebook this week. and. You know, it it seems like a a human tendency that people like to summarise the whole complexity of Christmas in some sort of ethical principle, like, um, you know, just something as simple as be generous, uh, remember the poor, uh, Jesus was a refugee, so we should like refugees, be inclusive. All of these I've seen this week on Facebook and... and, uh, I think it's tragic because this is those things are uh, while they might be virtuous in and of themselves, they just aren't the meaning of Christmas. They just can't come close. And and it's a passage like this that we need to look at, where the author Luke, um, who who was actually many of us don't realise, I don't think, that has written nearly half of the New Testament, word word for word. Uh, he, uh, he, he gives us the interpretation here. And in this particular passage, uh, I don't think I've, I've uh, heard a preached on that much, but th- this first chapter is, is, a, is a way of framing the Christmas event. Uh, it's a narrative interpretation. So the writer gives us the clues by the way he tells the story. He structures the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus in this framework so that we won't misconstrue it or we won't be uh, tempted to overlay it with our own banal interpretations. So when Luke writes, he goes to a lot of trouble in this chapter to basically tell a story like a plat. There's a story of two miraculous births that shouldn't have happened. There's a story of two angelic visitations Mary and Elizabeth, or Elizabeth via her husband Zechariah. there's a story of two reactions and the story of two fulfillments of these angelic words. So, and they're deliberately wound together and you't get you have to jump through the chapter. he deliberately wants to say that what God says to Zechariah helps us understand what God says to Mary, which is the bit we know a little bit more well. Or So let's look at the the structuring story of Zechariah and how the spin that that puts on this particular story. It's interesting we're told uh, early on that this guy is a priest of the division of Abijah. That is, the priests, by the time we're in this era, there are more priests than there are Sabbaths and holy days, and they've divided them up into 24 divisions, like 24 teams. And uh, in those teams, there could be a couple of hundred men and uh, who, who would be eligible to go and offer sacrifice and intercede for Israel in the temple and to do those holy things at the appropriate time. So the chance that you'd get uh, selected is pretty slim. But we also read in these early verses that this particular priest and his family uh, were under a shadow. And that is, they were not able to have children. Elizabeth, the wife, uh, though she was of the daughter of Aaron, the first priest, she could trace her lineage back. Though they were both righteous, that is, they were morally scrupulous and they were, you know, particular about the law of God, they still had no child. Not only did they have no child, but the chances of having children were getting less because Elizabeth was advancing in years, moving through the decades. Now, here we have a a real tension that despite the fact of their, their perfect record, despite the fact of Elizabeth's pedigree, they were living under a cloud. And there would have been muttering. And the way people moralised about uh, the events of life in those days, they would have drawn conclusions that where there's smoke, there's fire. There's something missing here. This couple haven't had kids. God has frowned on them. And this all changes one day when we don't know how they drew lots to decide who would be the the priest of the day or who would go into the holy of holies to sprinkle incense but the marble with Zechariah's name came up and all of a sudden their life changed all of a sudden all those nasturtiums and criticisms were stripped away and there'd be a lot of backslapping. Well done, lad. And he was going to wear the robes and he was going to go into the whole... And, and the family would be talking about that for years, that their man represented the people of israel the whole of israel and he went in and represented them before god and he would have been proud of that and he would have known the liturgies already and uh, had it all ready to go and he he was a man of of uh, tradition and and so he does and he robes up and he gets into the the, the heavy duty gear that the high priest wore and the other priests did their machinations in the outer courts and then only he proceeded through the little corridors, the stone corridors. He could, he could smell the dank smell of the, the candle wax burning in the Holy of Holies. And there, as he went in towards the altar, he had his little plate of incense to offer. He could hear his own sound of his own heartbeat going as he he moved towards that altar. And he was just getting through the liturgy and about to sprinkle the incense upon a particular altar that they had when he noticed a particular figure standing before that altar and he was poleaxed with fear. Not only was he meant to be the only person in there, but this person, this being, was stunning. Uh, A.W. Toes of the Great saint, Saints said that if by chance one of God's angels uh, entered by the rear of this church on this particular morning, you and I would have all the trouble in the world to prevent ourselves from falling down and worshipping them so glorious they are. And this was not just any old angel as we find it obviously uh zachariah is in deep shock he doesn't look well the angel picks up that his heart is missing missed a beat he's ashen and so this angel sets him right and he says basically <clears throat> well done lad your prayers the intercessions that he's just added to uh uh, the, those of the, all those priests before him, your prayers for the redemption of Israel have been heard. And here's a bonus here's the steak knives that you get with the deal. There's a little added on, a double whammy. Mixed with these national answers is the pastoral. Your wife, because I know you've been praying for a kid for decades, your wife is going to bear a child. We're going to add that. To the answer of your intercession, you didn't ask for it here, but it's coming. And then he outlines something about this child. Now I'm not sure at this stage if Zachariah was being calmed by these words or even further distressed when he hears that his wife is going to hear bear a child. and the angel rattles off. A whole lot of things about him this child wouldn 't drink alcohol because he 's going to be filled with the spirit of God of God, even from the womb, this baby would have God residing over it. And would be utilizing him because this child is going to have an incredible ministry. This child is going to bring a revival of the spiritual temperature of Israel. He's going to bring them back to worshiping God. There's a fascinating little phrase there that uh, sadly in the attempt of uh, modern translations to uh, de-gendify the scriptures. They've missed something here. It's not turn the hearts of parents to their children, as if, you know, they had pretty lazy parents in those days. It's turned the hearts of the patriarchs. It's Speaking of the, the, the mythical view that the, the Jews had, that whenever Israel lived, day by day in heaven, the patriarchs had a ringside seat looking down and seeing what was happening in Israel. And century by century, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the, the patriarchs, who had been the bearers of the covenant faithfully, 1,500, 1,200 years earlier, looked down and when they saw Israel, they only saw disappointment. And they'd sort of look away and go, oh, here they go again. You know, God, faithless Israel. You know, But what is going to happen is that your son is going to get the patriarch switching channels and full viewing Israel again, they're going to be thrilled with what they see by the ministry of your boy. That's what the angel is saying. It's an incredible period in Israel's history. And you'd think Zechariah would be going, wow, can't wait for that. My son, heaven watching, he's, a, he's going to have a major part in Israel's history. John, who gets called the Baptist. But Zechariah's response is interesting, isn't it? He, he sort of zoned out at, now listen here, <laughs> um, and uh, hadn't sort of picked up the detail because all he heard was the first bit about your wife, who's barren, is going to have a child. And so he responds with this phrase. He says, how am I going to know this? Sounds like a neutral little phrase. But why ask for how he's going to know? He's being told to be told as to know, right? Uh-uh. This is an implicit demand for a sign, for confirmation, because he doesn't think that an audacious promise like my wife being barren, now bearing, at senior level can be trusted. To demand a sign is an implicit distrust. How shall I know this? Now isn't this interesting? Let'll just pause here, that this guy is a man of Torah. He knows the law backwards. He knows the liturgies of Israel. He's a priest. He's trained, he's a professional, he's a scrupulous moralist, but he's also ambivalent. He has a man-centred sort of religion. He's so concentrated on the routines of Israel that Israel's religion is all about what men do, what humans do. And I think this phrase, how shall I know this, basically is telling us something that his religion is also agnostic. It's religion trimmed back to the plausible only. This guy believes as much as the average man who never gives God a second thought can believe. It's trimmed religion. Thirdly, it's avoidant. This man has a view that while there are stories back in the legendary past, this man has a view of history that shuts God out. History is heading nowhere. What I'm doing today is the same as what we'll be doing tomorrow and a thousand tomorrows beyond. Nothing is actually changing. The world is running history. It's an endless routine. But he should have realized that this promise has precedent. That this promise that an impossible birth would happen, happens every time God does something significant in Israel's history where there's a paradigm shift, there is a promise, there is a a sacred child. You go back to Samuel and uh, his mother Hannah couldn't bear Samuel. The first of the prophets. And you go back to Abraham and Sarah. That is all part of the beginning of Israel, where God creates the covenant, the first and final ultimate covenant, uh, through his promise to Moses. Again, this sort of promise God tends to mark. And that is his sign that when God steps on the scene, things happen that are impossible by human calculation. God is present when that is happening. You know, I've spent probably uh, three decades um, either teaching or closely connected with uh, uh, the theological institutions in this country and others. And I wouldn't be able to pass a passage like this without reflecting on that experience. But I think this tells us something that we, the average saint, need to be concerned about the bona fides of the theological institutions to which we send our best. So many of them are really echo chambers of cynics. Of people who have a very low view of God and his ability to affect history. It begins, you know, back in the 1700s through the Enlightenment and into the 1800s through people like a, a Schleiermacher, not exactly a name on everyone's lips, not exactly a name you can fit on most lips, but who, who basically says that religion's nothing to do with the fables of scripture, but it's about human experience it's about what is universal to all men not what particular promise to Israel and yet these things are are taken up and they're nothing else but frocked up cynicism Bultmann in the last century and Weber and others we're living on their shoulders sadly in theology and it's gutted the church of Europe it's emptied people of faith Those who depend on their teachers have been shortchanged. Why? Because these people in their brilliance trim the truth to fit what is vogue. They trim the truth to fit the philosophy of the age, which will be gone in another 50 years. Why chase the philosophy of the dying and the ignorant? But that is what most theology is about, not evangelical theology, not reformed theology. But we've got to be wary. All theology is not the same thing. we read about this, we should have expected it coming. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy 3. He spoke about people like that. That'll have a form of godliness but deny its power. Form is nothing if power is absent. And this is why the angel responds like he does. He responds to this guy rather than saying, Oh, you poor ignorant fool (laughs) he actually says some pretty significant things he he says who do you think i am who do you think is talking to you this is the angel gabriel this is the angel that uh, came to daniel in exile at the time of the evening prayer. And it was fascinating that Daniel, despite the fact that he lived in an, ag- an agnostic and an aggressively anti-covenant culture, still maintained the habits that his family had back in Israel. And so he prayed every day at the time of the evening sacrifice. Even though the sacrifice wasn't happening because the people of Israel from Judah are now in Persia, he still keeps up the faith and Gabriel comes to him and says, your prayers have been heard and answered. That's the Gabriel it's dealing with here. And so Gabriel basically says, in logical consequences, there's a discipline for this impudence. You don't get away with that. It's logical consequences. You could have had an active role in God's salvation history. But you ripped up the script, and so you're going to be a bit player watching from the sidelines. You could have been a spokesperson, but now you're going to be a silent witness, quid pro quo. You know, there's applications here that these things are just as much about christmas it's not just about goodwill to all men gee that's good i'm safe i can disregard christmas for another year this is about a god who acts and expects responsibility revelation from god comes with responsibility when god speaks he expects response the response of faith he may have spoken to Abraham 1,500 years earlier, but his word is still good. You know, it's no accident, I think, that the are center of Christendom today if we counted up dots on the map of true believers, those who really know Jesus, for whom the Spirit has borne them again, you could say. If you went around the world, then the darkest... Part of that map density wise would probably be in sub Saharan Africa today, maybe in China. It's a remarkable thing that even in this country, every second Iranian hairdresser that cuts my hair is a Christian. They're coming to the Lord at a rate which you couldn't believe. It seems like that the chance to hold the light does not last forever. Europe, England, the US are abandoning the light. And God is removing, like in Revelation, it says He will, and He's taking it to those who are living in darkness. That's the way He works. We are part of a massive drama that is happening in human history if we're aware of it if the sum total of our our horizon is just our own experience in our own enclave then we're missing the big picture god is at work fascinating the book of hebrews in hebrews 2 2 and 3 could be speaking about this passage when the writer says that if the message that was delivered through angels proved unalterable, how shall we, he says, we being people in his age, that's us, post-Christ, how shall we escape if we refuse so great a salvation? The chance to hold the light can be withdrawn. Don't take God for granted. That's what the passage is saying. You know, there are denominations in this, um, in this country People wrote at the start of the 1900s in Australia, wrote back to Britain about the revival that was happening in Methodism, for instance. That the two denominations that were having any impact on the history of Australia were no longer Anglicanism and Catholicism, it was the Methodists and the Baptists with their simple gospel. But the former, sadly today, is doing more selling real estate than it is proclaiming this gospel. How shall we escape the activity of God if we hold his promises with contempt? It's the attitude to the promise that counts. Well, Zechariah moves outside and everyone can tell straight away that guy's not well. (laughs) He's seen a ghost. You know, just a little word for uh, sometimes we find some people you, you come across folk who are the excitable types who are pretty easy and fast and loose to tell them and tell you all about the words and the visions that they've had. And some people seem to have more visions than Joan of Arc. But, you know, I honestly think if you saw this sort of vision, you'd be in hospital. And uh, that's the nature of coming as a sinner into close proximity with holiness you don't just play fast and loose with that experience he was not meant to encounter he didn't think he never thought he'd encounter god's messenger in the temple even though that was the holy of holies ironically and he comes out, and they say, basically, what's happened, man? And, and, and uh, he, he can only gesticulate. We don't know how he did the sign language. I don't know, you know. <laughs> I <laughs> saw. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, who knows? But sign he did, and uh, sure enough, away they went. He went back home, uh, up the hill country. Elizabeth, no, she's pregnant. And on the way things went, it went all according to the word, not according to their plans, And on the eighth day, finally, after the son is born, we pick up the story again. We've had the angelic vision to Mary. We've then had Mary and Elizabeth meet. And now it comes for the birth of the first promised child, the first special kid, John the Baptist, and he is born as promised. It's real old covenant faithfulness type story. It's like Abraham and and, uh, Hannah and Sarah and Samuel again. And it comes. they come to the little rabbi, local rabbi and it's their turn to get the boy done. And the rabbi picks up the son and he says, OK, what's the little guy's name then? What are we going to call him? And Elizabeth says, uh, John. And he smiles because their family's known. That's a local rabbi and... He knows that she don't get it, does, it? does she? That, you know, if you have any respect for your family, you name them after firstly after one of the grandparents or you go back a bit further, but there's no John in your family tree. John Wright, you know, he patronises her. And uh, he says, go and ask the dad and find out what a kid's really meant to be named. So they go to Zachariah. Isn't that interesting? They go to Zechariah, and I find this quite curious, and, you know, <clears throat> he can mansplain us out of this problem. And they turn to the dad, and did you notice in the text they do sign language to the dad? Now, he's, he's not deaf. <laughs> he doesn't need sign language. He's mute. <laughs> And he must have been looking at them like, oh. and he says, basically, he asks for a tablet, uh, you know, not an Apple tablet, but something about the same size. And so it's a little wax tablet and a stylus, and he writes from right to left in nice chunky big capitals, I think, and then underlines it. His name is John. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't write, let the woman name him John, or I like John, not a bad name. No, it's not about aesthetics here. This child has already been named. He's been named by God. His name is John, regardless of what you people think. That's what he's saying. It's a bold affirmation of faith. Something has happened in this man's heart over those months, and I reckon over this long week coming up to the eighth day, this man now really trusts God. He's no longer just a professional religionist in a crisp, bright frock. This man now is a saint who believes. And right at that minute... His tongue is released. And we burst into this first song that we're given, which is the official interpretation of Christmas. I don't know why we don't have that antiphonal hymn that we sang at the start of this service. It is what Christmas is about. Why doesn't it appear on all Christmas cards? It's God's official endorsed version. That's what it is. You know, years ago, I remember I was um, doing some research and consulting in Adelaide uh, for a few years, and it was a joy to get around the churches. And I came across one church, got to know their pastor Well, a fairly young fellow, and um, he'd done a good job in a church that the Union Baptist Union I was working for had sort of ridden off. Uh, This church worshipped in a very um, old, historic building, and uh, it it had spires. It was a Baptist church, but it had spires, and um, frequently those spires had rusted through, and then the swallows could nest in the spires and the high parts of the roof. It was literally in the service, you could be sitting there and just have to duck a swooping swallow and whoosh, you know, there's another one. Uh, you know, keep your hands down it's a, and, uh, you know, especially loud music would tend to um, awaken the swallow. And, uh, you know, they, they, they had sort of two philosophies here in the church. And, and it was a, a church that really needed to do a rebuild and uh, you know do some renovations. What had happened over the years is that the main road used to be sort of a chain away, but now it was the main north-south highway with three lanes going both ways, up to Central Australia and Port Augusta and all that and down to Adelaide. And right outside your church door were Trucks screaming past every Sunday, you couldn't hear yourself preach. And uh, the pastor had put it to them that you know, it's very difficult to minister. Look, we seem to have two options: we either sell and shift, but it was a national trust church, or we renovate. And you know, Baptists really like to argue about property, don't we? <laughs> and uh, there's a few really incredible meetings about whether to uh, renovate this uh, derelict building and get rid of the swallows and all the stuff that went with that. And a few of those great verses like over my dead body and that were mentioned. and, and uh, But in the middle of this one, one day, they're having trouble fitting in the new converts that were happening in this little church. And God was at work. And there was one daughter and mother that used to come to worship in this church and the the daughter was in her 60s and she used to bring her very dementia mother to church every Sunday it was you know about the only thing she could get out to this uh, elderly woman had not spoken a word in at least three years and she was just there and would just sit and people would bring her tea and and that sort of thing and uh, didn't seem like anything was going in. And she had to stay for this church meeting about whether they're going to get in debt to do the reno, and uh, in the middle of this, Mother raises her hand and then stands, and the whole room thought, my goodness, asks for the microphone and says, I just would like everyone to know that I trust the pastors implicitly. Thank you. Do you think that finished the church meeting? Any more comments? (laughs) You see, when people witness to the promises of God, he's in their midst. And we'd better be quiet rather than our normal level of prattle. God releases tongues to witness to his truth that's a sure sign that he's at work. Well, we finish this story with Zechariah, now with tongue loose, coming and sing this incredible, they call it a hymn, or it's really a prophecy. And I just think that's amazing that here we have a fellow who was commissioned and trained and ordained Just to be a priest, to say the liturgies, to offer incense, to do sacrifice. But now God puts him in the role of honour of the prophets. And oh, his son will be the greatest and the last of the prophets. Dad gets in on the gig. And he comes out with this incredible, you know, there's another sermon in that, but I simply point out the interesting thing. As he speaks of this hymn of salvation, he says, and I particularly point out in 72 that he comes to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him fearlessly. Folks, that is the promise that we sit in. We're here today because 1500 years ago, a particularly unimpressive bogan called Abraham was visited by the Almighty and was given to him a promise that in, because of the faith of this guy in this promise, we sit here today. Now, it's not because of Abraham's faith. It's because of God's decision to bless that faith with the covenant of salvation. And you see, to God, 1500 years BC to 2022 AD is a blink of an eye. And this God is good with his word. He has not rescinded that promise. He has not modified that promise. The promise is that we are the people of God. We are the fruit of a promise to a peasant. Don't you just feel privileged? That's the meaning of Christmas not something that we do, but that God has fulfilled when everyone had given up on God. He kept his promise, and he keeps his promise. And he had you, and he had me in the apple of his eye that day he passed through that Split carcass and made the covenant with Abraham that we would sit here today was part of the dream of God. That's the meaning of Christmas. God, the, the God who keeps his promise. So when Christmas is over this year, folks, we pack up the decorations in the box and put them back in the attic or under the carport or whatever. Christmas is not over. It's being fulfilled. The promise of God is real. And he has wrapped us up in that. And he's called us not to be bystanders, not to be bit players, but to be witnesses of the fulfillment of the promise. That gives my life significance. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, O Lord God, that as we sit here this day, we are known to you. We are people that have been plucked from obscurity and from ignorance and from sin and set up and established in the family tree of God. We thank you that you know our names. As you sit in glory this day, we are all known to you. And we simply want to say here today that, Lord God, if we don't see a miraculous sign in the rest of our life, if we don't have a lot of friends who believe the same thing as us, we trust you and we trust your promise. We look forward to the day when we will see with you, not by faith but by sight, all those saints such as this Zechariah, this Elizabeth, who've gone before us, in glory with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.